Welcome back to another episode of Money for Nothing. I'm Saxon Baird with Sam Backer. As always, we are the podcast about music and capitalism. Happy New, Happy Year. New Year! So I actually have a have a year a year. Uh, I've got a new take on years. I think I think okay, that yeah. it we should move the year zero back two thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> okay, why? So, <laughs> because. <laughs> I don't know. I've been like, like I think a lot of it's in the kind of zeitgeist. I've been, but, but you know, uh, I've long been interested in like very early human history, and uh, I didn't realize how much we knew okay. about stuff before the year two thousand BC. We actually know a fair bit um, about all kinds of stuff. Is my sense is okay. the year around eight thousand BC currently is really the the edge where we're like, we don't really know that much beyond that. Okay. All kinds of new techniques are developing all kinds of new f- uh, ways of tracing uh, population movements, making all fire, kinds of cool stuff. And, and making tools. No, no, no <laughs> making, like making full cultures, making cities, oh, making okay, like, right, like right, large-scale okay. trade networks, all music. kinds of stuff. Yeah, maybe, yeah, presumably yeah, music. Sure. Total pet peeve. Every time they find an ancient musical artifact, they're like, and it's a flute. And I'm always like, how is it tuned? Like, t- oh. how are you not going to tell me how it's tuned? Oh, you shit. Found yeah, good point. Okay. Surely right. you can figure this out. Anyway, I think that think that the that by making the year zero only 2,000 years ago, um, it, it, it hides how much of human history has happened, how much of human history there is. And so it makes it, so let's say capitalism hits around the year 500-ish, right? Okay. Maybe a little bit earlier. That means like, like to the year zero, it means like a core, you know, like, like half of, half or like a quarter of the half of human history is capitalism but if you move it to the year zero back by 2000 years so it is the year 4020 it's like capitalism is only this little blip and i think it 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 subliminally helps us think beyond it saxon oh i like this yeah i like this okay yeah yeah heady 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 way to start uh the year 4022 (laughs) sorry sorry listeners who wanted to hear about uh a music and B things we know anything about. Well, I could add a music uh, element to that, um, <laughs> like little tangent at the beginning of the show. But like, I wrote an article about uh, raga music. I actually wrote two articles about raga music in a short span, and uh, I think in one of one of the articles, I like accidentally wrote that like the music was like a hundred thousand years old instead of like ten thousand years old or something. And like the the editor is it ten thousand years old? Yeah, yeah. See, this is is it. <laughs> it's well, not they claim i don't know i forget i'm but sure they claim it was Lots hilarious because like, no, but, the, but, the, but, the, but the point is the point is is that like i was like oh shit like that bypassed the editor and then i emailed the editor and the editor never changed it and so somewhere out there is like me claiming that the music is a hundred thousand years old and like definitely got like w- at least one uh response on twitter that was like no way it's that old and i'm like yeah i know motherfucker like <laughs> that's such that's an order of magnitude off that's such a long a hundred thousand years is such a long time was the it, earth fully formed by that i don't know okay anyways okay yes moving on yes it was god <laughs> money for nothing your place for really like incorrect information <laughs> Uh, I promise you, in Money for Nothing, we are not uh, fake news and facts. Uh, we might get things wrong sometimes, but that's why we encourage you to email us. And speaking of emails, we're starting the year off with the long-awaited mailbag episode. Uh, we know a lot of people do this at the end of the year, but we decided to start the year this way. Yeah, thanks for writing in, uh, DMing, messaging, however you got in contact with us. Uh, we were very, very impressed with the letters we got and 
I think some I'm probably gonna base like a some couple, of them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The first one, not so much. But like, we're gonna we're gonna base like probably a couple episodes off of some of these questions, like full episodes. We're like, oh, we can't actually like really answer this in like a. 10 to 15 minute like blip and actually we could spend like you know hours on it so thanks for writing in that was, that was it was really great uh but we're gonna start off with a uh with a one from uh sam's brother jake of bird language who wrote in and asked why are certain late 90s and early 2000s rap albums only available in the edited form on spotify for example pawn or memphis bleak and uh jake i just want to say that um you're wrong they're they're all on there and they're uh, not all in there a lot of them are in there most of them are in there but some of them aren't but none of them are in the edited form uh that memphis memphis bleak's first album is only in edited form at least in the song titles which is even weirder yeah interesting like i think i think it's the titles are the edited titles and then the songs are the unedited version i like gave that that record like a, a cursory listen and i couldn't hear any edits there's also funny things where like some of this also has to do with maybe like with um just the the oh no that one sorry just to be clear yeah i listened to that one too are we talking about coming of age uh yeah i think so the yeah 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 record. i yeah i noticed that yeah that's the song titles are like yeah are edited but no i listened to that yeah it's definitely not it's definitely the explicit version yeah and so some of this some of this is i think like if there was ever a medium to embrace the full gargantuan expanse of the CD. It was late nineties hip hop, right? Like hell yeah. Why would you turn in anything under 60 minutes? Why would you turn in anything under like, like the full amount in which the CD can contain? No, it's just like more, more, more. I mean, it's how the production sounded. We got four minutes to kill. Let's make another song and a skit. Let's fill it up. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, like big puns record has both, the edited and the unedited version of at least one, I think a couple of tracks, like the radio cut and the slightly longer unedited cut. That's what I want. Because he's just like, I mean, yeah, we just want more pun. Like, and (laughs) why not just put it on there? Who cares? Well, you know, it's it's also this interesting thing where like, it just reminded me that when you like hear like an old, like a classic, like late nineties, like rap song on the radio, and you're like, oh, I know the lyrics to this. And then you realize it's like the like edited version. And like some of the edited versions are just so edited. Or like they just did like a completely different verse. Like I'm pretty sure Gin and Juice, like they just has like completely different verses. He like just re- recorded like a different verse to like to that song Snoop did. And it's like, oh right, this this sucks. And it particularly sucks when you try to do karaoke and then you realize they put on the edited version, which I would understand. I, I actually I like the edited version of To the Window by Little John better. Because it's just more skeets. Like, I guess, like, the radio censors don't, didn't know what skeet meant. So instead of saying, ah, oh, skeet, skeet, motherfucker, ah, oh, skeet, skeet, goddamn, which is, like, somewhat, it's, it's crude, right? They just say, ah, oh, skeet, 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 <laughs> skeet, skeet, Like, and it's just, like, semen. It's just like what you're doing is you're confronted by an audible, just a wall of semen. And, and uh, I just thought that it's better. Yeah, 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 sure. I can see that. I can see that. But wait, so like, I mean, I guess the really answer to this question is like, I mean, we've kind of, we've talked about this a little bit before though. And I mean, this isn't like, this isn't a, a detailed specific answer, but basically like, it's pretty clear that Spotify doesn't really give two fucks about 
any kind of accurate historical archive when it comes to these people's catalogs. Like you can go back and listen to my interview with Stephen Thomas Earlwine, and you know we talked about how the biggest, one of the biggest selling records in like history, which is like Eagles' greatest hits, like is actually like at the very, very bottom of like their Spotify page, which kind of like re- and re- re- you know, which is like totally bizarre, you know, and like because. Because it's a compilation, and that's where they put it. Yeah, and that's a compilation. That's where they put it, right? You know, and obviously there's like gaps in like in in discographies and like all kinds of stuff. And I'm assuming there's also probably just the issue of also you have like these major these labels that are like licensing this music to Spotify and like just not paying attention in, in, like in regards to like the details of everything that they're like that they're dropping. Well, I mean, I also think that for some of these artists, I mean, I do think it's interesting that it's a very specific period of rap music. And my sense that for a lot of them, like, these are folks who are putting out a lot, a lot of them are folks who are putting out a lot of albums in, like, different versions, less the New York guys, but, like, um, but like Mike Jones, where he's putting out just a ton of records. My sense is that, like, probably the way a lot of people are interacting with these records is through, like, make, you know, their, their own mixes or pulling out individual tracks. And so just, like, the interest or the attention to an accurate discography, especially when they're, like, releasing screwed and chopped versions. Yeah. Um, like, you know, with those, they'll have, like, six six records. <laughs> a yeah. uh, And it, all of this is just a small segment of, like, the broader discography. And, the you know, again, the, the dynamics of, like, which stuff gets on Spotify and which doesn't has a lot to do with, like, the, the intricate, I would say, like, micro-political economies of these folks, many of whom had their own labels, but were also some of those projects or, or self-releasing stuff. Some of those projects were on major labels. Um, and I do think, I think it's about this very specific time in hip hop culture where sort of the ability to mass produce records um fairly cheaply just opened up a flood of production and that so that like uh almost like a bibliographic (laughs) complexity coupled with spotify's total absence of caring creates these weird things where like again memphis bleak the song titles are edited um and the actual music is not i mean the other thing that that maybe points to and some of this you know we've done some some work on, on the music modernization act i think probably a year and a half ago now that there are really the databases for organizing this stuff are really shoddy and a lot of it's on the artists themselves to like figure this stuff out and like connect all the dots and so who knows what databases spotify is pulling from but like again that that in particular, that Memphis Bleak thing suggests to me some like weird database stuff where they're like the 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 image of the album says explicit, so they're pulling that from one database. The song titles are the edited versions, and then the audio is somewhere else. Yeah. And this seems to me to be actually kind of a fascinating artifact of like the the infrastructures and the kind of the the uh, the 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 infrastructures that produce these digital music platforms and the total lack of interest they have in the products that are moving through them. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. And I think that 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 all kind of like leads seamlessly into another question we got from a listener named Tomas who hit Sam up on Twitter who wrote um hey man I love the podcast. I was listening to the Digital Dark Ages episode yesterday and one point that I immediately thought of that wasn't discussed is how streaming in particular has allowed artists to curate their history and what impact that has on the preservation of fact within music history. And then he gave an example. He said one, one example that comes to mind is Pantera leaving their multiple albums prior to Cowboys from Hell off streaming. 
and then asked like what impact does that have on listeners' perception and knowledge of their real history? And like we've talked about that um, in That's previous great episodes. And thank you for listening to Moss. Yeah, yeah, they, they, yeah. Thanks for writing into Moss. Really appreciate it. Great question. And like, yeah, we've talked about this uh, in previous episodes. We discussed in detail about um, Aaliyah making it to streaming and just kind of like about the generation that was like completely didn't have access to like her music and like how that might have like influenced uh, or not influenced or could have influenced like people coming up and making music that are like younger who like weren't around when like, you know, she was uh, popular and a star. But I mean, I also think that 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 example is a really interesting one and like because po- it points to both like the specificities of these digital platforms mm-hmm. and I would almost say like the digital architecture, but also like the ways in which this has been going on forever because Pantera deleted those albums, <laughs> did not just delete them on Spotify, right? Pantera. So for those who don't know, um, the metal band Pantera uh, blew up in the early 90s with this like very like groovy, I guess is a, <laughs> sounds like a stupid way to say that. But like, you know, like the, the songs have like real rhythm. They've got groove. I, like they're very Southern rock influenced, but also like super metal, like yeah. heavy records. Yeah. Um, also, like necessary disclaimer, their lead singer is connected to all sides incredibly sus dude connected to all kinds of like outright terrible white power stuff and statements um a anyway different story for a different day however before they became this like raw intense metal band they were a power hair metal band for a really long time like their breakthrough album was album like five i think and they're in like goofy costumes and they're like trying to be a hair metal band and basically once they released cowboys from hell which is the album before their breakout album they just sort of dropped all that stuff i believe their uh their guitar player went from diamond daryl <laughs> to Dimebag daryl <laughs> as an indication of the kind of aesthetics shift of the band and basically they those records haven't been released or re-released and as soon as they blew up in the 90s the band did everything they could to delete though that content from the historical record and and so that's like a you know there's a longer history and they were, you were able to do that in those earlier period of times because the expectation that everything was going to be reissued just wasn't there. You had to actually, record companies had to opt in to keep producing the physical copies of these records rather than opt out by pulling them off of Spotify or or, or streaming. And I mean, I think that then it kind of points to like this interesting and problematic role that these companies like Spotify have started to play as kind of the keepers of the history. And maybe this is just like the takeaway message from from that conversation we had in Digital Dark Ages and from this this point, which is that like they're not good and not interested at a fundamental level in being the maintainers of that history. And so while it can look like they are, they're simply they're they're just not and the danger, it seems to me, is when we treat them like they're going to do something that they've never said they're going to do, have no vested interest in do, besides kind of making it seem like they're the the universal font of all music. I also like the question because it brings up issues of like artist control. And I think there's a situation in which like certain artists, even if they wanted those earlier albums like off streaming, like wouldn't be able to take them off streaming. Yeah, so I'm thinking like, you know, 
obviously all the legality issues around Taylor Swift. Yeah, and no, and that's an issue where she doesn't own those the masters. She doesn't own those masters, and she can't pull them down. Right, right. So it's interesting. So it's interesting, kind of like, <laughs> in in some ways, like not only is Spotify having like a major contribution to like and changing our historical understanding of say like a band's history and back catalog but then because of certain label dynamics and contract dynamics some artists aren't able to pull their like music off right and but some bands like pantera are using this now dominant like way in which we like access music as a way to like better shape their history because like they don't want like this older music to like be like heard essentially or at least like continue shaping that history yeah yeah which is such like a fascinating sort of like relationship you know and it's also interesting too because you know i was like doing some research about early like florida death metal and one of you know there's a band atheist who was like kind of like one of those like original death metal bands and they're like not on spotify and i was like oh why are they not on spotify and there's also stories of like labels like not releasing music for streaming Mm -hmm. but then i found that i found their records all on Bandcamp. so i was like oh cool like this band does have control over their music and just chose not to be on spotify but then like they're not making it onto death metal playlists for spotify or whatever you know and kind of being left out of that history unless you like really want to go and do that like detailed research yeah, and I think my my guess is they're able to do that because of the way the kind of like a scene economy of metal functions, where like people who know know and they buy enough, you know, colored, one hundred eighty gram vinyl or whatever. Um, and honestly, it's probably not like they're they're they were like going to be racking in massive amounts of money from Spotify. No, of course not. Yeah, yeah. With. So that, yeah, it's that choice. But when you think about like how either a band or a scene or like a genre's history is understood and shaped like undeniably like the big sort of takeaway here is that whether it's Pantera using that technology to purposely obscure like earlier records in which they release because like they doesn't fit like whatever however they now want to be perceived or whether it's like just the way in which like Spotify is like presenting these records on the band's website web page or whether it's something more complicated like the Taylor Swift situation it's like the the bigger takeaway is like this technology you know and this way in which we access music and listen to music is like completely reshaping and our our understanding of these histories and like how we approach these artists and how we understand them and how like we have access to them. I just flipping on ya. Silence. I'm just trying to advance my quotes. I ain't making you the butt of my jokes. But let's not stray from what I came to say to my beloved. Think we need some time away. They say if you love it, you should let it out. It's cage and fuck it. If it comes back, you know it's there to stay. It's tugging at my heart. But this time a part is needed from the public who should have gave me the politics. That gave me the ass to kiss But you know me thugging to the casket dips But still shine light down on all my pairs I know they wear Some queer I still want them to share And all the success I receive I know you can't believe I still love them but they don't love me They like the drunk uncle in your family You know they lay so Next up we have um, Andre who asks How a theremin works um, And the answer is simple They don't Theremins are a lie uh, they're just, you know, a series of dudes 
with combs and wax paper in them, um, they don't exist. Next question. <laughs> well, can I just add one thing? Is that uh, although here's like here's like you know how like there's that Beach Boys song with theremin. Turns yeah, out it's not vibrations. a fucking theremin. See, they don't exist. Right, exactly. Like it's a fucking lie, actually. Which we talk about understanding our history. Who started that lie? Just because there was like a weird sound on that record. Um, that's that's a really interesting question. I mean. Like, again, I would point to whoever was behind the overall theremin conspiracy. Like, you just sprinkle it back as you're reconstructing history. And then once you realize that, man, once you realize that, then you start to question, like, the broader canons of rock history. Because you see that, like, deep inside all of these points, there is, again, a theremin. And you know they don't exist. (laughs) So the next question comes from William Card, who actually wrote in a number of questions, which were awesome. And, uh, yeah, we definitely... Thank you so much for writing in, and we're probably going to do one, possibly two episodes, loosely really inspired by you. Be more like William, guys. <laughs> and, and like, I don't know, man. Like, maybe you should come on. Like the electronic music question. Like, I don't know. I think you should come on. But, um, anyways, uh, the question that we're going to answer from William is: He wrote in and said, "I'd love to hear if you both have any thoughts on the future of emerging music markets around the world." While majors have vested interest in their growth, is their growth likely to be cookie cutter to the U.S., U.K.? Or are countries like Nigeria and Russia plotting new paths? I think this is a really interesting question for a lot of reasons. But but one thing I think that it's important to do is kind of like disarticulate the idea of emerging music markets. Because a lot of countries around the world have had like pretty intense and like intensely profitable domestic music markets for, for a really long time. You know, uh, whether that's uh, Nigeria, where, like, we know Fela was, like, making enough selling records to create a large-scale compound that was big enough that the military had to storm it. (laughs) But, like, that, you have to, that's a pretty big compound. (laughs) Um, Or, like, you know, the the complexities of the the Arab music market, much of which is turned in Egypt, uh, Indian music markets, which are tied to film. Like, there's pretty huge markets which which i don't think that this question is is saying that there aren't and i just think that it's interesting because i think that from a u.s perspective that it's less about are these markets emerging and more like is there a way to integrate them into a global music market that where the u.s has like really intense built-in advantages right because so 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 while i don't think that I think the idea of Nigeria as an emerging music market is is a complicated one from a U.S. perspective. I don't think major or like US, from even like a sort of like neoliberal capitalist perspective, or, like a non-communal perspective on like no, a but, like I mean, globalized they, they're business, right? They're guy. They were guys who had record pressing plants who sell yeah. large amounts of record. We're talking about like full on industrial capital. I guess I'm saying is I don't think the U.S. record companies have seen historically much, if any, money from Nigeria. Um, or places like Nigeria, and that I think there's a potential maybe um, for digital, for for with with the kind of the globalized technologies of digital streaming services, for some of that money to start coming to them. And so from their perspective, it is an emerging market. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which, you know, also brings up like all kinds of issues around like the the higher the economic hierarchy of the world in regards to various like countries. And like how those relationships are play out in like the globalized market, 
and you know i mean just a cursory research that i did i mean you know the biggest streaming apps music streaming apps in across countries in africa are like owned by a chinese company and then like a startup in new york city so like obviously these companies like view like africa as you know a hugely profitable market in which they want to take control of and now spotify is in 47 different countries in africa and like there's this whole you know business competition going on and who's going to dominate africa which you know we can get into like the language of all this and the, the way this, these are viewed and how they're like you know u.s uk centric or whatever but you know it's just an example of kind of like an expansion of what like sam was saying but uh, i was i was i was interested in uh in answering at least one of these emerging markets that you mentioned and like i think that like sam and i are probably going to actually do like a more expansive episode in the future on some of these questions some of these questions yeah but like i was actually really interested in kind of uh looking into russia and i was like what was this big fucking country and like i don't really you know different language obviously so i don't really hear about hear the music maybe but i i was, I was surprised to find out that it's like only the 16th largest recorded music market in the in, in the world which I don't know is, surp is surprising and probably worth more research. And just from like cursory research, I know that it's like a huge piracy problem in Russia. And I don't know if that has something to do with it. But, you know, obviously, like in Russia, big labels have a huge foothold. You know, there's Atlantic Records, Russia, you know, Warner's there, UMG's there. And, you know, just like the US and other like major markets, like subscription to streaming services increased by 40% in 2022 in Russia. But, in doing this research, I did come across uh, an interesting little story around, I believe, I believe a label called, I think it's called Melodia, um, and is the name of the formerly state-owned music label in Russia. So this is like, this under Soviet Union was the only music label, actually. And it was not until 2020 that Russia privatized the label by essentially selling it off for a mere $5 million to a label called Formac, which is basically a deal, claims to be a deal broker. Uh, and they claim to work with commercial industries like hotels and restaurants to provide music. Sus. And after purchasing Melodia, the company basically said that Melodia's back catalog would be incorporated into its own business of providing, quote, background music for hotels, restaurants, and shops. <laughs> so... I bring this up because understandably there was a lot of shock and dismay at the selling of Melodia in Russia because essentially the label is considered a major archive of like Russian music heritage of like the entire history of recorded music in Russia. So there are like a number of original recordings from the likes of like Tchaikovsky or like Rachmaninoff in their catalog. There's also like Azerbaijani like funk music from the 70s. And like before selling it off, Melodia had actually put their entire catalog online for like purchase and streaming. And so, like, a lot of people in Russia were, like, w like editors and writers were, like, what the fuck? Like, five million for this? And then there was, like, worried, like, will we have access to it and everything? Well, I did a little bit more research, and it only gets more interesting. And basically, one of the two founders of the supposed music company, Formac, is this guy named Dmitry Smirnov, who was essentially a mid-level functionary in the soviet union and after the fall of the soviet union was one of these dudes who got like some like random high up political positions before basically going off and becoming an entrepreneur so like this is all to say that like a dude with like 40 years of connections with the state maybe explains why a huge treasure of russia's musical heritage was basically sold off for a song 
uh, <laughs> but fear not because I actually checked in and all the music is still available and they're even releasing new records. So like, as far as I can tell, Melodia was sold for peanuts. So this dude can make his money back quick and then continue to make a profit off Melodia essentially into continuing to act and function as it always has. That's my conspiracy theory on Melodia, but, uh, no, actually like, <laughs> but also, no, I mean, but like, the- the, but I will say, I will say one more thing just in regards to the state owned stuff, cause this is really fascinating. Right. And this kind of brings up this sort of also this new form of capitalism which I think we're seeing a lot more in Russia and China, which the state of Russia actually bought and started its own like online streaming service. It's huh. called, uh, yes, yeah, so it's called Sberzvuk, uh, S-B-E-R-Z-V-U-K. Yeah, guys, we're, we're doing the best we can. Yeah, if you, yeah. if <laughs> and you if have a, a complaint about our Russian pronunciations, please email us and, and, yeah, mom, and carefully, like, phonetically so spell out how to <laughs> pronounce these words. So, so, like, this, like, basically, like, they're, like, trying to be a Spotify. They have over 40 million tracks. They have deals with the three global major labels. They have, like, deals with, like, independent and, and like, local rights ho- uh, rights holders as well as, like, audiobooks and podcasts. And, like, they already, like, basically are trying to do this Amazon style of, like, blending streaming video and music and, like, grocery delivery and cloud storage and all this. And it's, like, owned by the Russian state, which is just, I think, so fascinating because, like you you know you get what you're getting now is like the state-owned participation in the market which is like the kind like i said the kind of capitalism which i think we're maybe not quite used to here in the u.s yet but obviously are seeing more in like china and russia but like yeah to answer your question like that's you know, so that's so interesting yeah because at, at some level um like that's a great idea what a wonderful <laughs> like that's that's great i mean i don't obviously <laughs> support the Russian government but that kind of application of state power I mean look, it, it, it opens up it, it seems like a way to a get rid of certain kind of monopolistic tendencies b like a potential way to like adequately uh, 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 pay out the the artists on a label because like if some level like if there's a society and that society generates a state and then that state owns the means of product pr- production like <laughs> um <laughs> you know like that's kind of a um potentially a good thing however unfortunately and, and this reminds me of something that that a friend of the pod uh david turner has said in regards to some of the chinese government's tech crackdowns where it's sort of like well this is really fascinating to see these tech moguls like brought to heel however <laughs> it's seems like it's tied to you know kind of an autocratic control over civil society and and so there is this funny thing where in some ways this is you know a repudiation of the fundamental tenets of liberalism in both of these spaces right Mm -hmm. that liberalism which to make a very long story short emerges in like a reaction to kings right because if you have kind of the rights of contract and the rights of the market as a way that the king can't like uh, just ha- decide to make large scale changes. That's why like property rights stand against the king. The king can't come onto your house and take your stuff, which is if you have a king, probably a good feeling. You actually don't want the king to come and take your stuff. But so, you know, these, these states where they don't respect some of those rights are also able to, in addition to doing many terrible things, like able to, 
make changes to sorts of business relationships in a way that would be much more difficult to do in the U.S. And again, like I by no means trust <laughs> why they're doing some of these things, but it's a tricky not to get out of, right? Like, how do you maintain the safeguards of civil society while also making large-scale changes to the basic structures of business? Yeah, those are all great points. And I mean, like, in a more idealized sort of socialist utopia, it sounds great, but obviously... It comes we're not with, tankies like <laughs> yeah we're not tankies but like you know obviously like for me it comes with you know a healthy skepticism which i know i know that it comes with a healthy skepticism on your end as well and i think that actually it's already it's already been like an issue before this ever happened in russia where there's like suddenly these cultural centers and how they're funded and what they're expressing you know is becoming a target by the state of russia and i'm by no means know the deep yeah no by no means know this on any deep level and if you know more about it please write in and like correct me if i'm wrong from the from the little that i have read and 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 heard is you know like music is definitely like seen as this like major way in which you can promote you know russian patriotism and then also of course like there's always the issue of like censorship that's from plato onwards right plato's like you got to change who sings the songs that's how you're going to structure your society no i think that's an excellent point and uh, again one of the one of the dangers of of these systems right is that sure if you have a state-owned spotify or then you have state-owned record companies it also means that the 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 ability of uh, a censorious government to control what can and cannot get out there is, is much higher and that's clearly a worrisome potential which is wild which is just so ironic and wild because like here the comp- here the the state sells off melodia and which was the only record label in so in the soviet union and obviously huge amount of censorship it wasn't until gorbachev that melodia actually started cutting deals with like major rock western rock bands like the rolling stones and the beatles and releasing them and, and for whatever reason in my research, I found a lot of like really high priced Stooges records that came out on Melodia. But anyways, uh, <laughs> but but now the Stooges were released on Melodia. Yeah, 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 yeah. Pretty uh, random, right? Yeah. Um. And but then now is like kind of like entering into the music market, like but more as like a you know in in the streaming in the streaming realm. But I think also just I wanted to add like one more point, and like obviously I, I've been talking a lot about this on the pod and outside of the pod. But I, I do I do I also wonder if this is like some sort of surveillance capitalism effort going on by like you know the government as well and of course like they do have access to that and like if they're seeing what you're playing and like you know your habits and all that you know that's information which they're gathering which like all these platforms and all these apps and all these like services are doing anyways here in the u.s but then you have like a little bit a less regulated more let's say like a, a more autocratic state and you know who knows what they're doing with that with that information. And I know this all sounds like very like paranoid sort of. <laughs> uh, well, no, you know. I mean in Russia, if you're in a state where you poison political opposition actively, it's not paranoid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, I just, I just like I, I like to. I, I don't. I want to refrain from the the Russia phobia that tends to sometimes infect both sides of our media. But putting that aside, like, you know, I, I it, it is another element, which I'm, I, I am curious to see, like, the growth of the streaming service in Russia, the state-owned streaming service, and, like, whether or not people use it. And then also, what's really interesting to, to add, like, another aspect I haven't mentioned yet is that Spotify launched in, in, in Russia just in 2020. 
and like currently actually isn't the most popular like streaming service either. And then and this state owned one, as far as I'm aware, like isn't the most popular one as of right now. But they have the deal set up. And yeah, it's just it's just interesting as to like why they're doing it. And obviously, I mean, maybe it's just the basic like, hey, it's just another revenue stream for the state, you know. But it, it it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting move that's kind of combining a you know Soviet era sort of communism with free market capitalism. <laughs> So moving on from uh, paranoid surveillance, commie, commie capital, state-owned streaming service in Russia, we're going to the Midwest. And listener John DiCarvalho wrote in and asked a very fascinating question. <laughs> you all should do an episode about the history of the start of radio stations as marketing for animal feed in country music. So on its face, that question uh, is, is pretty hilarious. And I'm like, John, like, what is the title of your dissertation? I, I can't wait to see that. And if you don't have a dissertation, what is the book you are like writing? And what is the title? Because I feel like there's a bunch of puns that aren't coming to me right now, but I'm sure are like definitely in there. But no, it's actually like also like a super fascinating question for a lot of different reasons. Right. So Internet feed. What? Uh, like like a radio feed? No, there is. I'm trying to think of the puns now. Uh, oh, yeah, radio so, feed. And then, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll work on that. We'll work on that. I mean, John might already have his, his book title. But anyways, like, you know, like, yeah, I don't you, know you why. really want to answer this question, right? Sam, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is, <laughs> this is, like, a fascinating question to me because, so, I mean, I, I did a little bit of digging. And while I'm sure there's, like, very specific dynamics and sadly was not able to find that much written about animal feed in particular there is a really long history of the relationship between radio promotions um and you know brought to you by the biscuit flour company brought to you by local businesses the clico yeah the promotional structure of radio is really really interesting and really really important for the early development of american music and i think it's another space I think taking it seriously points towards the way in which the kind of mid-20th century model of the music industry, right? You're a band or a performer, you sign with a major label, you release a record, a physical thing that exists over time that is then sold, is a fairly limited period of time, and a fairly limited structure of production, that's been incredibly aesthetically important, but that like very much does not define all of the popular music industry. It doesn't even define all of like the mass mechanically reproduced music industry. And I think that I think the relationship between brands and the kinds of performances that they would sponsor get you into a lot of those issues. And actually, in some ways, like points towards a lot of dynamics that are much familiar, much more familiar to us now, where like. Early on, radio is is an absolute game changer in rural America. Radios really hit, it, it's they, they hit kind of later than, at least I always assumed when I first first started looking into this. Um, that uh, radios really get big during the Great Depression is when they're cheap enough that it's possible for people 
or for an increasing number of folks in rural America to purchase them. And they're a game changer because they really do, in these isolated communities, they bring the world in, right? They can hear symphonies. They can hear news. If you're in the, the Great Plains during a long winter, the idea that you can tune in and, like, experience culture like it literally like it it fought loneliness like this crushing loneliness that existed in these small farms during these like very long winters and so fairly early on i think you get kind of dynamics where you're sort of getting national type broadcasts however you also get regional broadcasts and that's so the culture of a place being broadcast back to the culture of the place. There's a lot of these like barn dance or hayride radio shows. The most famous of these is the Grand Little Opry, um, but there's a number of other ones um, that kind of basically take the kinds of performances that would exist in rural gatherings, which fig reels, country music, country comedians, which is an entire genre of comedy that um, is really important in this period of time. And basically it would be brought to you by the x y or z right and that x y or z would would create an, like, a really powerful uh sense of goodwill because they're sponsoring these often beloved entertainers who come to you every friday night but it's also fascinating because unlike records this is all incredibly temporary right and i think that that's one of the reasons why it appears like a funny question and it's because kind of going back to that digital dark ages, right? Even though this was hit a mass audience, even though it was being performed every week, unless someone is doing what's called a transcription, basically um, cutting a record off of the radio broadcast, because this is pre-tape, none of it survives. So there's huge swaths of incredibly important mass culture that just only exist live. And so in some ways, I think, again, that our predisposition to think about mass culture as being tied to these fairly static objects like records is actually misleading um, and undercuts the importance of these kinds of commercial connections. You could also you could probably also connect that to like this. The live music industry as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you could, but 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 this is also you know this is not reaching a hundred people or a thousand people. These are, these are broadcast really widely. You yeah, know? yeah. These huge reaches of some of these. Yeah, that's stations. that's a great that's a great answer to that question, Sam, and like why we wanted to answer it. Yeah, and I guess it points to the kind of the intersections between technologies of mass of mass media and local and regional dynamics. And I think there's a lot of times we think about these technologies and then also look at the kind of very top-down business stories that structure them. So we think about NBC and CBS or whatever, right? And we're not thinking about local television or we're not thinking about local radio and that those forms interpenetrate and those forms coexist in all kinds of complicated ways. And those are those are really difficult histories to get at and, and also because it's this problem of, you know, if it's a whole bunch of different regions, they're all going to have a different regional history. And how do you put those together into a one big story? You it's very difficult if you can at all. Maybe they're not one big story, but that doesn't mean they're not super important. I mean, it's also that, funny. And that's something that kind of gets left out when these histories are written. It reminded me a little bit of some of the discussions we've had about streaming services like Spotify and about the relationship between new forms of capitalism and new forms of, you know, branding and commodification and their tie to, I don't know, forms of uh, i guess like human good or human pleasure you know yeah so you've got these 
brands that are trying to reach these audiences and kind of uh, expand the market economy into all these little crevices of life and also trying to expand the market economy to a certain extent into the, the music economy because now these artists and their music is being tied into the system. There's oversight about what they can and can't say. It's a, you're having a business mediate the connection between a performer and their audience, uh, a, a relationship that was previously not mediated or mediated by touring mechanisms, but often much liver. But at the same time, you're bringing this music into people's houses, people who didn't get to hear this music before. And that like human beings, a lot of times, if it's like more music or less music, they'll be like more music, please. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah true, true. Uh, and, and that can seem like very simple. And, it, and I think there's this kind of um, from a position of super abundance, I think that there's this critique especially on the left of like, oh, the reality of music is being crushed by the amount of music being produced. And like the, the, the art is being devalued or culture is being devalued. And there's, you know, I think that these kinds of relationships offer an, an interesting counterpoint to that because it's like, if you don't get that much music, if you have to go to a barn dance to hear music, the idea that music's going to come into your house weekly is is a game changer and like a, a, a pleasure of life. And these farmers, if you read, um, you know, I'm, I'm pulling from a book uh, written by uh, Richard Bush called um, The Making of American Audiences. It's really fabulous. He's like, we're not lonely anymore. That's huge. And if if it's like we're not lonely anymore and we have advertisements, maybe that's a bargain that you'd still take. Yeah. A lot of people And also, take. if you just think about the relationship between, like, brands and, like, culture, and you think about it on that almost, like, super, like, baseline level. So, like, you've, like, literally spent half your life without a radio and then you have a radio and then you start hearing advertisements on that radio, it's like your relationship with that brand is going to be like way stronger and different <laughs> yeah. than like maybe our relationship with brands right now, you know, like in this more modern context. We're like, oh, I'm just going to pay for the premium Spotify because I don't want to hear a fucking ad again. You know, it's like, no, if you're like a farmer in like, I don't know, whatever, like, you know, and you've never had a radio Can't. and suddenly you have it and they're like advertising animal feed, like that's your fucking animal feed. <laughs> Roly poly eating corn and taters. Hungry every minute of the day. Ah. Roly poly, gnawing on a biscuit. Long as he can chew it, it's okay. He can eat an apple pie and never even bat an eye. He likes everything from soup to hay. Roly poly, daddy's little fatty. Bet he's gonna be a man someday. Okay, so. To wrap up today's show, we thought we would kind of, if this was kind of looking back to a variety of <laughs> concerns, great and small, <laughs> that we've left on the table um, or inspired thinking about in past episodes, we thought we'd wrap up today's show by kind of looking forward a little bit. And so I guess I wanted to ask you, Saxon, like, you pull out the crystal ball, you look at the astrological charts, you figure out what the zenith is. What stories are you interested in, like excited to watch develop or that you think are going to be important in 2022? Yeah, I mean, I think the, like one one thing I'm really interested in is like the development of like Web3 and blockchain and all of that, which we obviously saw like really take off. <laughs> blockchain and all that. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, and all that. I mean, really, truly, like, fuck, I don't know. Put it up under a big umbrella of like the new Internet. I don't know. What do you want to call it? Like. Web, what do you call it? What do you call it? Web 3.0 bro. Uh, <laughs> Web 3.0 bro. <laughs> like, yeah, obviously we saw that emerge a lot last year. And I think that the Web 3 thing is obviously like getting a lot of hype. 
obviously like I hold a lot of of skepticism about all of this, you know, NFTs, cryptocurrencies, web3, all these sort of new hot words that which we're like hearing now in the media and obviously are like very closely connected and involved with like the music industry and it's like transformation as well. I'm skeptical because this that is this is the business of Silicon Valley and like the te- is to pr- to hype shit up. I actually came across something side note footnote that's like related. I came across something. I used to do research, uh, really boring like industry research for for this guy like about seven eight years ago, and I somehow like came across some research that I had done, and I had found like a white paper on Google Glass. So remember those Google Glasses that we were all going to wear that like were kind of like augmented reality, right? And it said that by 2020, it estimated that 350 million people will be wearing glass. <laughs> well, that's not happened. <laughs> yeah. I agree with what you're saying. and But I, I do think that not only is Silicon Valley very good at hyping things up, but there is like... One of the things that blockchain does is in some ways it moves that hype dynamic right so if previously you were pitching a company and you were trying to create buzz so that angel investors or seed funding would come your way right so in some ways you're trying to hype for a group of people who have a lot of money and can frankly looking at you as always soft bank afford to lose a lot of money Mm -hmm. and one of the things i think that's different about the block chain stuff nfts is part of this too is that it's kind of being pitched towards the average american consumer as in some ways like that hype is not just like hype about the potential of the technology but there's also a financialization hype right that these assets are going to increase in value and like i a all assets don't increase in value like fact and b like it just it the, the macroeconomic conditions are so wild right now. There's so much money sloshing around the American economy. Like, until you get something that's utility instead of speculative value, it, I'm very interested to see how those those two that that those dynamics play out over the next year, I guess, e- echoing what you're saying. Yeah, and I mean, to be honest with you, like, I fear it. And I think there's a lot of, like, different issues to bring up. And I actually... Um, I was talking with a friend of mine who's a reporter for, uh, well, I guess I won't mention who he's a reporter for, but I'll say he's a reporter in Silicon Valley. I'll leave it at that. And, you know, I was asking him about Web3 and like all the hype and everything. And he, he covers this stuff. And, you know, I was, ask, I was asking specifically about um, Andreessen Horowitz, which is like, you know, one of the biggest angel investors in Silicon Valley. And he mentioned how, you know, they were one of the biggest investors in Web 2, but now they're investing in Web 3 essentially because it changes the narrative away from like all the issues around tech, whether it be like surveillance or control and refocuses on this utopian vision of tech. But, you know, it's ultimately, in his opinion, aimed at being able to create a system that's far too complicated to ever regulate. And essentially it's just a libertarian fever dream. And, you know, I think <laughs> I think that that that, you know, you, when when you start hearing this hype, you got to ask, like, what is the motivation? And you got to follow the money. And I think, especially when it comes to Silicon Valley. And I mean, p- other people have different opinions about this who think that, like, you know, I think that, you know, if you want a different opinion, you really should go check out, like, the work of, like, uh, Matt Dryhurst. And, like, you know, he is someone who's really sees this technology, you know, F 
taken seriously by the music industry by by musicians if taken seriously by musicians can be utilized for our benefit you know and like you know he's a different opinion i you know i don't agree with everything he says but he's also very thoughtful and i think his heart is in the right place and all that so like you know there's different opinions out there about this but when it comes to like you know when i start hearing all this hype and it's coming out of silicon valley and i just you got to ask yourself like what is the motivation here like what is the society they're trying to shape what is the what are they trying to how are they trying to change this industry or this society and like where's the money going and like where's the money at you know and i'll, I'll just kind of leave it at that but i am interesting to see like where where it goes because i because i think it's a i think it's coming but i think it's going to be kind of a combination of both and i think it's going to be like messiness a lot of reality hype it's going to be the messiness of reality it's going to be yeah exactly and i think the regulation question is like especially when it comes to like if you think about like our current i think the regulation question is like a very important one as well and i think that it's not too far off to ask whether or not like our u.s government has a strong understanding of this and also like has any clue on like how to regulate it because it is so complicated so i, I agree with you that i think it the if only because of the amount of buzz it is getting but because that buzz then turns into valuation like you know this is the, the very very in the most pure distillation of an attention economy <laughs> where the only thing providing value is the attention i think it's an interesting story and i and i do agree that like whether this turns into a use case or whether it turns into a like beanie babies um is going to be interesting to see evolve <laughs> okay for me i guess two two things i'm kind of interested in one is i'm very interested in seeing the maturation of Doja Cat and Lil Nas X. And <laughs> okay. I'm really interested in that because I think that we've seen artists, I think fan culture and online fan culture is absolutely critical to like the digital economy of music. And we've seen artists who are able to mobilize and learn to adapt to that fan culture previously. But it seems to me that both, and this is um, brilliant friend of the pod, Jesse Olsen. Uh, we was talking about this with her, and she kind of said they're both trolls. They're both ex-internet trolls, and and totally they are true. right. These are people who were in fan culture, in online culture, and are now. It seems to me the first generation of pop stars who haven't just adapted to that culture, but are like fully from within it. And I'm really interested to see if and how their career trajectories and paths are different because of that. And how if their relationship to online is different because of that. So so what you say, well, yeah, but like, what do you mean by normal pop star? I mean, I think it's already happening, right? I mean, like, it, it, it seems like it's happening. As, we're seeing it now, right? So, I mean, are, are you saying, like, different from what we're seeing? Uh, so I think that they, this was... 2021 was the year it seems to me that both of them established themselves as huge pop stars and that now they have some some breathing room both of them right they're able to they they their careers went well enough whatever plans they had went well enough this past year two years that they're able to now just like they have a position and you can launch new kind of moves from this position. They're now, I would say both say like A-list upper echelon pop stars. And I'm interested to see what an A-list upper echelon pop star with all the resources of a major label, what their, what their choices now that their choices are a little bit less forced, what those choices look like. 
so like the I guess the other one really quickly is like we've covered a lot about the astronomical valuations that are being put on various artists' music publishing, especially these mega deals as you know artists like Bob Dylan or Neil Young um, sell their publishing rights to these like <laughs> jacked up investors basically with enormous funds. I'm struggling a little bit to figure out exactly how this could happen, but I'd be really interested and 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 frankly, the absence of it happening isn't is in and of itself interesting. is there is there any kind of actual real world valuation test that you could put? To some of these, what seems to me, and what we've said, it seems like overinflated cash money numbers being put to catalogs where I'm like, I don't understand how publishing ever generates this much money. And if there isn't, maybe it's like the perfect scam and like more power to like Bob Dylan for selling and just taking rich investors' money. Like, get it, Dylan? But like, I just wonder, is is there ever any kind of reality check or do we see this just continued Seems to me like asset bubble. I struggle to understand this stuff sometimes. I mean, but like it, my understanding is that like that this is all just to inflate the value of the actual companies that are like buying up these catalogs. Yeah, I guess I, I just wonder like some of the early deals are now what two years old, two and a half, and I wonder if like at a certain point someone's going to be able like, well, we said they'd be worth this much money, but in the last. <laughs> You know, we have only brought in $47. And so, um, or $47,000 or $470,000, none of which would be enough to make Neil Young's valuation earn them money. And so, like, I do wonder is but it's if not about, But it's not about level, Neil Young making the money. It's, it's, it's about, it's, it's, it's just about, like, inflating the valuation of, like, the song funds or whatever. Right. But in the long run, that if it's based on the the idea that at some level, like if you think back at like the hypnosis funds, um, some of the material around that, right? Their, their business model is not, we're going to spend a lot of money on publishing rights so that we can get other people to spend a lot of money on publishing rights so that the publishing rights we have purchased will inflate in value, which will allow us to spend more money on publishing rights, which, right? That's not the business model. The business model is that by the forms of industry connections and by more actively managing a catalog, it's possible to generate money. Yeah, it is. No, I don't believe that shit. <laughs> no, I don't believe that. Sorry, no, I, sorry, sorry. I, 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 don't think, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think they give a fuck about making that money back. I think it's like as long as, as, long as their like, fucking stocks are going up and the valuation goes up, it doesn't matter if they make money. No, no, no. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But in the long run, if a business is predicated on a certain thing happening, eventually you run out of suckers and then the valuations drop. Yeah, and you get out, or, and you get out, and you get out before that happens. You do, but the hypnosis funds doesn't. <laughs> the people that, no, the, but the people that have stock in hypnosis fund do. Yeah, because they sell it to a different set of suckers. But I'm just that's my, my that's question the whole is just whether. <laughs> <That's> like... <laughs> Look, maybe so. So then, and but then the valuations will go away, right? You won't be able to sell your catalog for that much money in two years if that's true. So if I can maybe put it a different way, what you're saying is that like it's interesting to see if in 2022 we'll see that bubble burst essentially, and whether or not this is like a or... blip where like. Neil Young was able to like cash the fuck out or like whether or not like this will continue to like the bubble will continue to like rise and maybe is it sustainable in any real way where like they can actually start making their money back uh, well that's the question or or my other question is more like is there anything that would even force that question that's coming I would say definitely so far, not 
at least not for like I'd say like not for the hypnosis. I think the I think the more fascinating part is Universal getting into it because they already have their tentacles and all the other shit as well. So that's really because it's for them. It's like it's just one more revenue stream. But when with hypnosis, where it's the only revenue stream, you know, I think that that's just all predicated on like fucking hype. I guess we'll see. But here's also another thing you have to consider: at what point does UMG make a bid for like hypnosis? You gotta talk. I, you, you, when you shrug, like nobody can see that. <laughs> I know. I guess. I guess I, the thing is, I'm not. I mean, is that reasonable? I mean, I don't know how this shit works, but it seems like at some point, I, like, I'm that not. Would... I'm not as positive as you are that there. I mean, isn't is this fucking way... MySpace? See, thing, I'm like, not I mean, as positive <laughs> as you are that there's not a way that po- certain kinds of publishing was undervalued previously. I struggle to see how it's valued at this height. And much like we were, you were saying about well, Web three, right? I feel like this is always going to end up for many of these things being a mixture of, right? We know the music industry is changing. We know that different kinds of, of, of forms of revenue streams from different kinds of social media are going to come online. We know that like the old model is like dead as a doornail except, you know, LP sales, which is kind of a different thing, right? So we know that things are changing and we know that changes the basics of the industry. And given that, it's totally possible that certain kinds of assets were undervalued. However, there's also an asset bubble. And seeing how those two things are articulated or disarticulated is the fascinating question. Yeah, yeah, I could say, yeah, I could definitely see how in this situation, I could definitely see in this situation something that we mentioned in our last episode, which was there's so many more touch points in which like you are hearing and engaging with music that maybe this is also predicated on a sort of speculation that they will make that money back because like there's such a rapid advancement in like ways to like monetize like music like we keep mentioning this class example but like the 30 minute high intensity peloton fucking ride that you're like that you're you're doing in your living room is like soundtracked by you know fucking dead mouse or some shit like that right and so like yeah i i, I could see that i, I could i could see that right i could see that um, it's a horrific vision. I really don't think you should wear that color spandex. No, no, just kidding. But no, I, I can see how like what you're saying is, you know, maybe there is in that in that case, like I do see how like maybe there is a way for like the investment that they put into these catalogs like does g- gain a return that is more than what they they like they paid. Right now, right now, it seems like for the last year, if I had to think about 20 to 2022, right, there's been no way really from the outside to do that much to see which parts are hype and which parts are real and it's gonna be really interesting both like when those things start to come apart and also like what is going to cause them to start to come apart because they are gonna eventually start to come apart and some parts of this are going to be making money maybe even a lot of money and i think some of them probably are and some of them are gonna be beanie babies right but like they're all in this speculative realm right now. Um, and some of that speculative is like betting on technologies that don't quite have a use case or aren't quite fully articulated or don't have a killer app. And some of it's speculating like just like this is my Charizard and this is how much I hope it will be worth. <laughs> well, we hope the next time you step into an elevator, hypnosis is blasting uh, out of the blue by Neil Young. And uh, But we're going to put a tie bow on this uh, mailbag episode, our first ever mailbag episode. Thanks for writing in. Obviously, you could always write to us if you have any questions or concerns at moneyfornothingpodcast at gmail.com. Music by Bird Language, as always, and we're excited to bring you another year of great content involving music and capitalism. Yeah, and as, as always, if you enjoyed this, uh, rate and review us on, on iTunes or um, 
Tell a friend. Spread the good word. Yes, please do that. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Bye.